Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust with, for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you, for it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. You see, I've done this before, and I've said that when I prepare sermon titles, oftentimes I bite off more than I chew, because if you look in your bulletin, it says that we're going to discuss Jesus' divorce legislation. Uh, there was uh, just too much to make it into one sermon and keep you here too long. So, we're going to deal with things that will lead, important matters that will lead up to uh, that divorce legislation. But these are very important items that Jesus is dealing with here. Uh, we need to understand why Jesus said that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what he said in Matthew 5, verse 20. We need to understand the nature of sin, the nature of the law of God, the source of that sin, the reason for the incarnation of the Son of God. We need to understand the relationship of the heart to the instruments of the body, that relationship. We need to uh, see the gravity of sin, the danger that it places upon our soul for eternity. We need to understand holiness and what it's like as it relates to sin. We need to understand the principle of the mortification or the putting to death of sin. And we need to understand the basics of Christian discipleship. All of this is necessary before we even get to the idea of the divorce legislation of Jesus in verses 31 and 32. And to show you the importance of the subject matter today, I just read a statistic this week online I forget the, the source. It might have been family first uh, aid or something of that sort. A research statistic is this, that nearly half of all women, 48% of those between the ages of 15 and 44 are living together with their boyfriend. 48% in America between the ages of 15 and 44. This arrangement lasts up to 22 months, nearly two years. Furthermore, 40% of those in the premarital cohabitation state, it says it led to a marriage within three years, but 32% remained in that state of just living together, and 27% of those just broke up after living together. 20% of all those women surveyed experienced a pregnancy in the first year of living together. Can we safely say that the institution of marriage is under great attack in America? Is there a respect for the institution of marriage? Not really. Why? why? Why have we come to this? We come to this because of a lack of understanding of the holiness of God and the nature of sin. That's why we're here. What about teen pregnancy? Well, 34% of all teenage girls have a pregnancy before the age of 20. 79% of these pregnant teenagers are unmarried. And why is this? 
a lack of understanding of biblical holiness, the nature and the power of sin, because they do not know the gospel or live by the gospel. And then, of course, we have the horrific cultural landslide uh, that we're experiencing today in the growing acceptance by politicians and, sadly, among those even conservatives who are beginning to sanction gay marriage. Well, you can call it what you want, but it's not a marriage. The Bible defines marriage as a union of male and female, not of the same sex. Anything else is but an abomination to God. Why is it? Because of a lack of understanding God's holiness, understanding the nature of sin. That's why we're here. After teaching on the nature of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, and showing that sinful anger breaks the commandment, Jesus now discusses the seventh commandment. And he discusses the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he now elaborates on how that is to be observed and how we break that commandment, unfortunately. Jesus likewise goes to, if I may say, to the heart of the matter by emphasizing the commandment. The commandment of thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery. See, what the Pharisees had done is, like with the Sixth Commandment, they had externalized the Seventh Commandment. And that if, if you weren't guilty of breaking externally the commandment, then somehow you didn't break the commandment. You could think what you wanted to think, but it didn't matter. And it wasn't a breaking of the Seventh Commandment unless you were guilty of of physical adultery. But Jesus, again, sets the record straight as to what constitutes the nature of God's commandments. They are a matter of the heart. And again, Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, you're not going to make it into the kingdom of God. And by making the commandments of God merely external and not of the heart, then what happens is we have placed ourselves in great spiritual jeopardy. And so what we see here, I'm here to tell you that this mentality is alive and well in America and even in the church that as long as you don't commit a physical act of murder or a physical act of adultery, you haven't broken the commandment. That is rampant. It's been rampant in the church for a long time. And that's because Jesus, you see, Jesus is, is informing us the true nature of the law of God. And it is vital that we understand the true nature of the law of God. Because, again, he says... If your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees who have just externalized the law of God, you're not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. It's that important. Many don't understand the relationship of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, with the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. And what is the tenth commandment? What does part of the tenth commandment say? Well, it says we're not to covet our neighbor's wife or husband, Right? Coveting is fundamentally a sin of the heart. That's what coveting is. See, Paul came to understand this, and here he was a Pharisee. He had externalized the law of God in a way that was problematic, but when the Lord saved him, he came to understand the true meaning of the law of God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 7 through verse 11. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, 
sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. The law of God was always an emphasis upon the heart. And Jesus had to instruct uh, those in his time the true meaning of the law. The true meaning of the Mosaic law that had been corrupted. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, several times Jesus says, You have heard that it was said. You've heard the rabbinical teaching on this matter. But I'm here to tell you what the law of God really says. So, you see, it's, a, it's absolutely essential for you and I to come to understand the nature of sin as it relates to being a Christian. The false mentality is that as long as, again, that people have, as long as we're not guilty of the outward act, and as long as we are trying to do, try hard to do good works, then we're a Christian. I mean, that's the mentality so many people have. But that is not what the Scripture says. What matters is not what you and I think. What matters is what God says in his word. And there are people in hell today who were sincerely believed the wrong thing. No one questioned their sincerity, but they're going to suffer eternity because they were sincerely wrong and did not understand the law of God as it really relates to us. What matters is how God views holiness. What matters is how God views his law. What matters is how God has provided for the remedy to man's sin situation. So, why, why are some professing Christians living together and not being married? Because, mind you, that is a problem in the visible church today. That statistic that I read to you was across the board where 48% of all women in America, again, between ages between 15 and 44, are living with their boyfriend. But that's uh, indicative. The statistic may not be obviously as high in the, quote, professing Christian community, but it is still a problem. I mentioned to you how one of the pastors a year ago, it was in here, uh, told us about a situation that his daughter was working somewhere in Greensboro, and they were having a Bible study. Uh, she was having a Bible study with other uh, of her female co-workers, of which most of them were living with their boyfriend. You know what you do when you have a Bible study that way? I'll tell you what I would do. If I had, if I had a Bible study and it turned out, that the guys were living <clears throat> with their girlfriends in an unmarried state, I'd say, you know, we're going to not have this Bible study. We're going to have to talk about something else right now. That's what we're going to need to talk about because it's no use to continue in this Bible study if that's the way you're living. So we better talk about this. <clears throat> and the reason why these people and these professing Christians live together without being married is they think, they're in love, right? Well, what's their concept of love? Well, it's a subjective feeling, right? Based on their own standard of morality, right? But it's not God's standard of morality. But it's their own standard of morality. But to say, well, if, if we do it in the name of love, it's okay. What does the scripture say? What did I mention last week? Love is the what? The fulfillment of the law of God. The Bible says that love is related to the law. So I don't care what I sincerely think of what kind of feelings I may muster up. If I am violating the law of God, then it's not love. I can call it love, but it's not love according to the word of God. Do you think all those 48% of those women living with those boyfriends, do you think they're consciously thinking, 
I'm living in sin, that this is morally wrong. I don't think all of them think. I think some of them may think that, but probably the vast majority don't think there's anything wrong with what they're doing. Why do you think professing Christians, you know, the divorce rate among the Christian community is nearly 50%, almost identical, well, virtually identical with the non-Christian community. Isn't that grievous? The statistic for the visible church is virtually identical with the world. And I'll tell you, there's more of the world than the church than anything, right? That's what that tells you. Now, do you think that they are uh, all thinking they're doing something terrible? No, they're thinking they're doing something that was, is right. But we're going to see this next week when we do talk about Jesus' divorce legislation. It says, unless you have what Jesus says, biblical grounds, for a divorce, anybody who, if you go out and marry someone else or anybody who marries that person has committed adultery. That's what Jesus says. And what Jesus says is what matters, right? Not what I think, not what the culture thinks, not what the rest of the church thinks. The only thing that matters is what Jesus says, right? Because on the day of judgment, who's going to be the judge? Jesus. He's going to be the judge. Jesus, what he does here in this passage, he brings out the true principle of the law of God with respect to the seventh commandment, just like he did with respect to the sixth commandment. He says, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her in his heart has already committed adultery. Now, Jesus in Mark 7.21 has said that out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, Murders, fornications, and adulteries. And then in Mark 7.23, he says that all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. But you see, the Pharisees didn't think that way. And there are people in the, in the church today that, don't, that are thinking more like Pharisees than the way Jesus says they need to think. Brethren, it is critical for us to grasp the biblical doctrine of sin. Because unless you and I grasp it, unless you and I grasp the biblical doctrine of sin, we have not understood the gospel. Let me tell you, say that again. If you don't understand the biblical doctrine of sin, you don't understand the gospel. The very plan of salvation hinges upon the biblical doctrine of sin. The whole incarnation of the Son of God into this world is based upon the biblical doctrine of sin. What is it? When the Virgin Mary was pregnant with Jesus, what did the angel instruct Joseph to call this boy? You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The whole incarnation, the whole coming of Christ into this world is based upon the fact of dealing with sin. It's that serious. It was so serious. That's why the Son of God came into this world. Say, he came to save people. From the sins of the heart that will send them to hell as fast as anything else. See, that's what Jesus is getting at. He says, you may have never committed physical adultery, but if you've had that lust in your heart, you'll end up in hell if you're an unrepentant sinner. Now, I assure you that this kind of preaching that I'm doing, it's not popular today. It's not often heard. And it's, it's not, um, it, I will say this, it used to be preached all the time in churches, and not just Presbyterian churches. You could name Protestant churches across the board. It was standard preaching a hundred more years ago. It was a type of preaching that emphasized um, sin and the gravity of sin and how to deal with that sin. Now, brethren, I re reiterate, 
We cannot understand the doctrine of salvation without understanding the doctrine of sin. There would have been no incarnation if there had been no sin for the Christ to deal with. What is the New Testament doctrine of sin, by the way? Well, 1 John 3, 4 tells us how to define sin. Sin is the transgression of the law of God. 1 John 3, 4. That's what sin is. And Jesus is telling us what it really means to transgress the law. It goes beyond the external act. It goes to the very nature of the heart. Bad thoughts. Immoral thoughts. That is the transgression of the law. That will condemn us. The whole doctrine of regeneration, and that doctrine of regeneration means being born again. The whole doctrine of regeneration means there is a changing of the heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It means that God has come and that salvation is a deliverance from the power of sin, from the slavery to sin. That's what salvation is. Deliverance from the power and the slavery of sin. Jesus said that in John 8.34. He says everybody who commits sin, that's present tense, everyone living in sin, he says, is a slave of sin. And then he goes on to say in John 8.36, he says, therefore, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Salvation is is being set free from the power of sin and its total grip upon us. And so when Jesus says, I come to make you free, he's come to deliver us from the power and the consequences of that sin. This is why biblical evangelism should always and must always begin with God's holiness. And it must always begin with the law of God. And our failure to keep that law, that is where it begins. Dear folks, evangelism emphasizes, it's not about emphasizing how Jesus will make you happy. That's not the thrust. Now, one of the consequences, or let's say the benefits of God's salvation is that we will have a meaningful life or we should be happy. But that is not the emphasis by any stretch. Need I tell you further than pointing to our text here that it is Jesus, it is Jesus who talks about the consequences of violating the law. And not, and thereby ending up in hell. It's Jesus who's telling this in our text. You see, <clears throat> there are some churches that are teaching that hell, get this, it's convenient, isn't it? There are some who teaches that hell is not really a, a place of eternal torment that sinners go to. There are some, quote, evangelicals who are saying all that the Bible talks about is it is a cessation of life. In other words, when you die, that's it. The soul is obliterated. Later on, I'll tell you some of the people who are teaching this. It's really sad. But what did Jesus say? Again, it's not what I think. It's what Jesus said. And uh, you see the spiritual danger that a person is in when they think that all that is the problem is that uh, when we die, are we just cease in existence? Let's put it this way. Do you think there are any serial killers such as those young men who took a gun into a theater or to a school and gunned down all of these people, do you think they were afraid of hell? 
I've heard some unbelievers make stupid comments like this. They say, hey, Bob, I'll see you in hell, and we'll have a real hell-raising party. I've heard them say something like that. That's stupid. Hell is a place where God stokes the furnace of the eternal fire. Hell is a place of darkness. Hell is a place of great loneliness. There are no parties in hell. It is a place where Jesus says it's a place of the gnashing of teeth. Where the worm does not die. Turn to Mark 9 with me for a moment. Look at verses 43 to 48. Now, mind you, I'm reading from the most loving man the world has ever known. But you see, real love tells us like it is, right? True love warns us of great dangers. Jesus knows there's a hell. And he was warning us not to go there. Look what he said. Mark 9, verses 43-48. And if your hand causes you to stumble, now this is Mark's version of our passage in Matthew, if your, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter the life lame than to have your two feet to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus is the one that tells us what hell really is. Hell is a place to be feared. Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon was a sermon titled, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And it was, in this sermon, it was a vivid, a vivid image of the terrors presented to men and the precariousness of man's condition. And, and, and Edwards would give this image of God holding people by, like by a spider's thread, uh, over the hell, and at any moment it could, he could just let go. Now, when Edwards preached that sermon, he actually preached that sermon in his own church, and it did not have the impact that it did when he was invited to speak at a neighboring church, and he preached the same sermon. When he preached that same sermon in this neighboring church, people began to weep and to wail in the pews in an unprecedented way. And mind you, Edwards was not a dynamic, vivid preacher like Whitfield. Whitfield could create images that were just powerful. Edwards read his text. And in reading his text, he was masterfully read it with the imagery, and that's all it took. For God to create a fear in the hearts, a healthy fear of hell. Non-Christians and some professing Christians today, well, they mock this kind of sermons. Uh, in a church where he preached it, like we said, uh, it had a great impact. But there today, people say, you don't preach that kind of message. Well, why don't you preach that kind of message? Jesus tells us it's better to go into life as a cripple than to enter hell with both hands if your hand is the one that causes you to stumble. This is Jesus-sanctioned preaching. This is why evangelism must start with the holiness of God. It must start with the sinfulness of man. It starts with the demands of the law of God. And what are those demands? Personal, perfect, 
and perpetual obedience. And if you can't give God that kind of obedience, you're going to end up in hell. James 2.10 says, you can keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, and thereby you are guilty of all. Evangelism deals with the punishment and the consequences of transgression. It's what all the great evangelists of old preached and that God used. Now, only when a person understands their guilt before the living God, only when you understand the gravity of your guilt, then you flee to Christ to find a remedy. Let me just say this. If a person has the gospel preached to them and they still reject Jesus or they don't think it's a big deal to believe in Jesus, it's because they haven't understood the holiness of God sufficiently yet. It's because they haven't understood they have transgressed the law and they deserve to be there. That hasn't struck home yet. Because I guarantee you, if it strikes home, they will flee to Christ. Again, Jesus, let's put it this way. A belief in Jesus, which is not based on a true understanding of the doctrine of sin, that faith will not save us. Jesus again said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Several years ago, I wrote that. I saw a need for a reformed gospel tract that began with the holiness of God, that began with the law of God, the doctrine of sin. Do you have some of them? i got some back there. You ought to carry them in your car. You ought to put them in your purses. Women, that is. Put them in your purses. Have them with you. And when the occasion arises, talk to somebody and leave it with them. People need to understand the holiness of God, the demands of the law. Jesus is telling us the demands of the law. You see, he's, he's elevated it to a, a level that the Pharisees did not understand. He says it's a matter of the heart. You can break this commandment in the heart. And I tell you, every one of us has broken that commandment in the heart. This is why you and I need the atoning work of the Lord Jesus to forgive us of our transgressions. The doctrine of sin makes us to run to Christ and to him alone. You know, one of the hymns that we sang there, I didn't know that was the stanza was going to be in there. It talks about, again, how great that, uh, when we talked about... <clears throat> The old rugged cross. How important it is to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Because without the clothing of the righteousness of Christ, we're not going to make it. Dear brethren, only when we understand the holiness of God, only when we understand the rigorous demands of the law, do we understand the love of God. Only then do you understand the love of God. Now I'm going to prove that to you. Turn to 1 John 4. Look at verse 10. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the love of God. Now, what is propitiation? Propitiation, that word is only used four times in the New Testament. And here's what propitiation means. It is the satisfaction of divine justice by means of a bloody sacrifice. That is propitiation. Because you and I have violated the law of God, we stand condemned. And the love of God is that he loved us, as Romans says, when we did not love him. And the love of God is that he sent the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, what do our sins deserve? Death, right? 
And that's what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. He died. And again, when we say in our creedal statements like the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, what he's talking about there is that he experienced on the cross that hell that you and I would experience if it were not for his work. See, hell is the payment for our transgressions. It is an abandonment of any kind of goodness of God. You see, in this world, God is still good to non-Christians. You know why? Today, the sun is shining. The other day, it was raining. Now, it didn't just isolate Christian households when it rained on on, uh, our gardens. It rained on the non-Christians' gardens. The Bible says that was good. God is good. The sun uh, is shining on everybody's uh, gardens today here. God is good. But in hell, there is no goodness of God shown. It's only the wrath of God shown. And that way, and therefore, because of our sins, the Son of God came and died the agonizing death. You see, the worst thing about Jesus' death was not the physical suffering. It was when the Father says, uh, and Jesus felt the pain when he says, My God, why have you forsaken me? He who had walked with God in close communion was now experiencing the ultimate loneliness. That is hell. The ultimate abandonment of God. That is what Jesus experienced on the cross. See, the, until you and I understand how serious sin is, we don't appreciate the atoning work of Jesus. We don't understand the love of God until we understand how serious sin is. We must come to understand, as Jesus says, the, the law of God is of the heart, and he says, if you lust after a woman or a woman lusts after a man, it goes both ways. He says they have committed adultery already in the heart, and therefore they are already in great spiritual danger. We must come to understand the depths and the power of sin. You see, we must come to understand that the sin of adultery is a thought process. That's where it begins. It proceeds from the lusts of the flesh that are already there, and that they overcome us. And then at times they will break out into the physical acts, but it begins in the heart. This is why Jesus says you've got to watch and pray constantly. Sin is subtle. So many think they're home free if they don't commit the outward act. No, we're not home free. That's the point Jesus is trying to make us. You're not home free by just not committing the physical acts of adultery. Now, it may be true that the state may not come in and punish you by executing you as it ought to if you commit physical adultery. The state, it does not exercise mind policing as such. It's not able to do that. It can't read the heart. But Jesus is saying what sends people to hell is the thoughts, not just the actions, but the thought is adultery. And that will send you to hell, he says. So the sin of adultery is what we think about. It's what we watch in TV. It's what we see in movies. It's what we see in magazines. And it's the kind of music that is very popular today. Just think about, well, and I don't want you to think about it. I don't want you to think about the lyrics. But you can have some lyrics that are really catchy tunes See, there were a lot of times that I would listen to music growing up, and I, I liked the, the, uh, the melody, but I never concentrated on the, uh, the lyrics. But later on, I began to hear the lyrics. I go, what in the world was I liking there? Because what they're talking about is just outright immorality is what they're talking about. So you see how dangerous and subtle it is? A very catchy tune, but the lyrics are promoting adultery. 
Now we need to understand the destructive nature of sin. And that's what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5. He's bringing out in verses 29 and 30 the destructive nature of sin. He says, now, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Now you're asking, what did Jesus mean? Well, I'm going to tell you what Jesus meant by all of this. Some historically have thought that Jesus uh, meant this literally. But you know what? We could cripple ourselves and we can mutilate ourselves and still end up in hell. Because, again, it's a matter of the heart. What Jesus was teaching by this imagery here, here's what he was teaching. He was teaching about the real horrible nature of sin and the spiritual dangers that it puts us in. And the great importance of dealing with that sin. That is what he's teaching here with this imagery. Now, would you not agree that eyes and hands are important parts of the body? Well, of course they're parts. And so what Jesus is getting at is that he says, whatever it is that's causing you to stumble, you need to get rid of it. Whatever is a source of temptation to you, get rid of it. That's what he's getting at. I know most, uh, maybe most of us have seen the movie Fireproof. Remember the guy had a problem with pornography on the Internet? It finally got to the point he just took his computer out and just smashed it right there on the driveway. Now, there are other ways of dealing with pornography on that, maybe besides destroying it. But if that's what it takes, then that's what you do. He was actually applying what Jesus says here. Uh, you deal with that sin. The whole point that Jesus is driving at is the holiness of life is that important. And it is the way of the Christian life. We were saved from the bondage and the power of sin. We need to uh, realize the power and the alluring nature of sin. Particularly the sin of adultery of the heart. You know, in a previous message, I discussed the meaning um, of the nature of remaining sin in the Christian life and the power, the fact that the gospel comes and delivers us from the power and the enslavement of that sin, but that the Bible does still say that we have the vestiges of that sin nature that are still there that causes us problems all the days of our life. Paul refers to that problem he saw in his own life in Romans 7, 22-25. He says, I love the law of God in the inner man. With my mind, I love the law of God. But he says, I see another law at work in my members that causes me problems and causes me to sin. And he says, oh, wretched man, who will deliver me? But he says, praise be to God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, I can be delivered. See, the mortification of sin is a lifelong process in the life of the Christian. There is no ultimate perfection in this life, but still the goal. I want to read to you. I know sometimes when I read quotes, you can phase out, but I want you to listen closely to these quotes by John Owen and John Calvin. John Owen was a Puritan. And the Puritans as well, he was an English Puritan, uh, and they, the Puritans were as good, there were probably nobody better than the Puritans who understood the nature of man and the nature of sin as the Puritans. In the 1600s, John Owen wrote a book titled Temptation and Sin. And here's what John Owen said, quote, It talks about sin. He says, sin always abides in the soul. It is never absent. Wherever you are, wherever you are about, the law of sin is always in you, in the best that you do, and in the worst. 
Men little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home with them. When they are in company, when alone, by night or day, all is one, sin is with them. There's a living coal continually in their houses, which if not looked into, will fire them, and if need be, it will consume them. Oh, the woeful security of poor souls. How little do the most of men think of the inbred enemy that is never from home. And then he goes on to say this. He says, quote, to mortify a sin is not utterly to kill, root it out, and destroy it, that it should have no more hold nor residence in our hearts. It is true that that is what is aimed at, but this is not in this life to be accomplished. There is no man that truly sets himself to mortify any sin, but he aims at, intends, desires its utter destruction, that it should leave neither root nor fruit in his heart. He would so kill it that it should never move nor stir anymore, cry out, seduce, or tempt to eternity. It's not being is the thing aimed at. Now, though doubtless there may be by the Spirit and the grace of Christ a wonderful success and imminency of victory against any sin can be attained so that a man may, not, may have almost constant triumph over it, yet an utter killing and destruction of it, that should not be, not in this life to be expected. Now, all that Owen is saying here is that it is an ever-present Danger, And that's why Jesus says, watch and pray. Calvin put it this way. Baptism indeed promises to the drowning of our Pharaoh and the mortification of our sin. But not so that it no longer exists or gives us trouble, but only that it may not overcome us. For so long as we live cooped up in this prison of our body, traces of sin will dwell in us. But if we faithfully hold fast to the promise given to us by God in baptism, that shall not dominate or rule us. Now, when he goes to say, some may think, well, then I'll just take a a loose view of dealing with sin. Well, Calvin deals with that. Here's what he says. When we speak thus, it is not that those who otherwise are all too prone to sin should slumber untroubled in their sins, but only that those who are disturbed and pricked by their own flesh should not faint or be discouraged. Let them rather think that they are still on the way, that they believe they have made good progress when they feel at least some of their lust has been taken away each day. Until they reach their destination, that is, at final death, he says, which shall be accomplished in the close of this mortal life. Meanwhile... Let them not cease to struggle manfully to have courage for the outward way and to spur on to full victory. So what they're saying here is it's an ever-present enemy to be dealt with. And how do we deal with it? We watch and pray. And if there is anything in our life that gets in the way, if it's our, now remember, the hand or the foot or the eye is just the instrument of the body that carries out what? The lust of the heart. But Jesus is saying, your soul's destiny is so important that you can't let anything get in the way of seeking the holiness of life in the power of the Spirit of God. Now, you can't do it in the flesh. None of us had the power in ourselves to deal with the lust of the flesh. Only the Spirit of God can give us victories along the way. So, what Jesus is telling us in this passage is that we are to forsake anything that prohibits us from serving Jesus Christ as we ought. Do you remember there was an instance where Jesus, a man said he wanted to follow Jesus, but he said, let me bury my father. Remember ever reading that? 
You know Jesus' response? Unless you understand what Jesus was able to see, he says, well, let the dead bury the dead, but you follow me. He thought, that's kind of heartless. At least let the man go bury his father. But you see, Jesus was able to see into the heart of the man. It was an excuse. It was an excuse to not follow Jesus for a time. And Jesus says, look, the dead will bury their own dead, being the spiritual dead will bury their dead. Don't hesitate in following me. you got to do whatever it takes to follow me. And any of the man was not willing to give up all to follow Jesus. It's better to be a cripple in this life than to enter the next life and end up in hell forever. Jesus has said, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So in conclusion... Keeping the commandments of God are a matter of the heart. We break the law of God all the time in our thinking. That's where it begins. That's where murder begins. That's where adultery begins. The physical murder, the physical adultery. But we said that anger can continue forever in hell. The lust of the flesh can condemn you in hell forever. And we must understand that unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, we're not going to make it. And so this is actually a prelude to next week's message on what Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce and remarriage. And we're going to see there... Jesus is going to talk about then physical adultery then. But it, that starts, the problem of that always begins in the heart. That's where it begins. A false understanding of the doctrine of sin. You see, those who, as I said, even in the Christian community, the, the divorce rate is basically as high as it is in the non-Christian community. I've already said that. And Jesus says, if you get divorced and there's not a biblical reason, you commit adultery. A lot of people don't aren't thinking how serious that is. They're not taking Jesus' comments very seriously. Let's pray.